Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Well, friends, the church, as I said at the beginning of Mass, the church celebrates the feast day of St. Basil the Great and St. Gregory Nazianzus. And uh, Christopher, where are you? Okay. I, I was trying to think right before, right before Mass, Christopher threw out this beautiful little like nugget of gold. He's like, if you can work it in, go for it. I'm like, ah! Uh, I, I, I got nothing, bro. I got nothing. <laughs> so, but you should ask him about it at dinner, and he'll tell you all about it. So homily 1.0 and then the homily 2.0 afterwards, all right? So uh, let's dive in. So our scriptures today, we are invited again to contemplate the figure of John the Baptist, which is kind of funny because we're in the Christmas season. We've been through Advent, and in Advent, the church gives us two whole Sundays to reflect on John the Baptist. Half of Advent you're spending thinking about John the Baptist, the proclamation of John the Baptist, you know, all of this. You, you get to the manger by way of the Baptist, and just when you think you're rid of the Baptist, the church says, no, 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 come on back to the Baptist. So we're back to the Baptist. It should, at the very least, give us pause to think or to ask, um, why, oh, Mother Church, do you invite us to, to contemplate this uh, figure so much? Why does he... Next to our Lord and next to our Lady, does he have more feast days dedicated to him? He's the bridge between the old and the new. Um, you come by way of the Christ. You come to the Christ by way of the Baptist. That if you don't know who John is, you're going to miss who Jesus is. He's the forerunner. He's the one who's preparing the way. His identity is key to understanding who Jesus is. Like, it's so significant, and we maybe miss it, but it's so significant that Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel, which is about Jesus, doesn't start with Jesus. <laughs> like, it starts with the Annunciation to Zechariah. It starts with John the Baptist's story. That's significant. That's significant. So, we have to understand who he is if we're going to understand Jesus and the incarnation and all of these things, what Jesus is doing here. But it's difficult, right? It's difficult to understand who John is. He's a mysterious figure. We see that in the gospel today. The, the Jews, better translation would be the Judeans, the hoi udoi in the Greek, the Judeans come out to the wilderness with the Pharisees to question him, to investigate him, because he's a bro's weird. What, like, what are you doing out there, right? What are you doing? And I find their questions so fascinating. Their questions, I find them so fascinating. First, it's, who are you? Who are you? Like, he could have just said John. Like, you know, like the bar Zechariah, the son of Zechariah. Who are you? And they ask, the Christ? Are you the Christ, the Mashiach? And he says, no. Well, then who? Who are you? And they throw out two more possibilities, which is interesting. Elijah, who is dead, right? And the prophet, right? They throw out these two possibilities. Are you Elijah or are you the prophet? Now, here's the question. Why would they suggest those two? Because, because of the Old Testament, because of the Jewish background, because in the Old Testament there were prophecies where the Jews were waiting for Elijah 
and they were waiting for this mysterious figure known as the prophet. Right? Go back to the book of Malachi, right? the last book before the New Testament. We hear this. The Lord says, now I am sending to you Elijah, the prophet, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and terrible day. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their sons and the hearts of sons to their fathers. So there's this expectancy, this expectation that before the Christ comes, the Messiah comes, Elijah is coming. Right? And remember how he went. The whirlwind, the chariots of fire, he went straight up, right? So, anyway, that's the first reason. Then Deuteronomy 18, we hear Moses, Moses is speaking, and he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your kin. You must listen to him. So, both of these sort of Old Testament prophecies, these background expectations of what's going to happen preparatory-wise before the coming of the Messiah. Now, here's the question. What was distinct about Moses when he says a prophet like me? Does he mean just like a great big beard? No, he doesn't mean that. But he probably had a beard. Okay, moving on. What he means by that is Moses got to converse with the Lord face-to-face as a friend behind the curtain veil, though, in the in the the tabernacle, the tent of the meeting, right? So there was the, the curtain was hung between the mercy seat, between the Ark of the Covenant, where God's glory was made known, and where Moses sat on the other side. It's like going to confession behind the screen. That's what Moses got to do with the Lord. He was the one who invented it. Maybe not, I don't know. But that's how he got to speak with the Lord, face-to-face as with a friend. So that was what the, was distinct about the prophet that they were expecting. Now here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting. John the Baptist is, he is the new Elijah. And he does speak with Adonai. He speaks with the Lord in the flesh, face to face, in a way greater even than Moses. So he does fulfill both of those. He fulfills both of those. Remember what Zechariah says after those long nine months of forced silence, right? Remember because he laughed he laughed when the Lord said through the angel that your wife will conceive. He says, no way, right? No way. He's struck down mute. So he's forced into silence for nine months and contemplating, thinking, praying Zechariah. Finally, his tongue is loosed and he lets out the canticle of Zechariah. He says, you, my child, speaking to John, you, my child, shall be the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. Both of those, Elijah, the prophet, to do what? To give his people knowledge of salvation. Hear that through your TOB lenses. Not just knowledge. Knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Okay, back to the Judeans and the Pharisees. Who are you? Okay, you're not the Christ. Okay, what are you is their next question. What are you? And John gives essentially two responses, different parts in the Gospels, two responses. He says, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. In other words, he's saying, I am the personal embodiment, the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3. I am the personification of that verse, the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And secondly, the answer he gives is, I am the friend of the bridegroom. In other words, I'm the best man. The Hebrew word there is shoshbim. He's the best man. In John's gospel, John says this. 
you yourselves, again, he's speaking to the Pharisees, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, Shoshbim, best man, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now full. He must increase, but I must decrease. So the Jews and the Pharisees, right, they're frustrated and they still, they're confused and they ask him, okay, then, like, then why, why are you baptizing? Why are you doing this? What are you doing out here soaking people in the water? John, what are you doing? And his answer, because there's another one who's coming and I'm preparing them to meet him. Now, it's so hard for us because of 2,000 years of Christian history and art and iconography, and we're just so accustomed to this, but like, it's an odd thing. Why, of all the things that he could have been doing, why is water washing the preparation he chose for these people, right? The Messiah's coming, y'all need baths, right? Like, why? Why is this the preparation? Why is he doing this? Because in the ancient world, the ancient world of ancient Judaism, the immediate preparatory ritual for the bride, for every bride before her wedding day, was that she would be bathed. In the ancient world, you didn't get a lot of baths. So if there was ever a time you wanted to be clean and smell nice, right? It was before your wedding. I don't know if the groom got a bath. I would hope so, but certainly the bride did. So it was a bath, and she would be doused in these beautiful perfumed oils. And the person who had the responsibility of making sure that this took place was the Shoshbim, the best man. So read this all through the lens of like ancient Jewish customs. What is John doing out there in the wilderness? He's preparing for the wedding. He's preparing the bride to meet the bridegroom. What are we doing as a church when we baptize infants, when we baptize adults at the Easter Vigil? We're preparing the bride to meet the bridegroom. Like the source and summit of our faith is not baptism. It's not confession. It's not anointing. The source and summit of our faith is Eucharist, the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. Look at this. I'm not making this up. I'm sure we're going to go into this this week, so this is a spoiler alert. Catechism, paragraph 1617. The entire Christian life bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ and the church. All of it. All of it. All of it. Catechism says this. Already baptism, the entry into the people of God, is a nuptial mystery. It is, so to speak, the nuptial bath which precedes the wedding feast, the Eucharist. Like, do you realize every time you come into the church, like you came in here and you dipped your hand in the holy water font, blessed yourself, you are recapitulating the nuptial bath that prepared you for the bridegroom. Like, like the thing about this week and about this place and about this course, it's like you step back and you're like, Oh, this is what it's all about. It's this insane love story. Like, yeah, there's the forgiveness of sins, but that's not the good news. That's good news, but that's not the good news. 
the, the source and summit is not the confessional. The source and summit, the high point, is the Eucharist. I'm so glad that the Lord veils himself in bread and wine. I'm so glad that it's so humble, it's so mundane, it's so hidden. Because I don't know how any of us would have the courage to step forward to receive him. Like, I don't know how we don't die, to be totally honest. Or the Old Testament, like, you, no one lived to see the face of God, and we're just like, amen, God goes in my mouth. And we just expect to go back to our seat and just, I'm going to say, now, Father, now, you know, like, I should be dead. I should be dead. I should be dead. This is an insane love story where I, we need to hear it again and again and again, but the, the truth is that God doesn't, he doesn't merely tolerate you. He's not just merely tolerating you. He's not merely interested in like managing your behavior. He looks at you with so much love and he says, like, I am fascinated by you. I'm riveted by you. Like the bridegroom in the Song of Songs, you have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You've ravished my heart with a glance of your eye. To look at him is to level him. The heck does that mean? St. Basil, whose feast day we celebrate today, he said this. He said, there are many annunciations, but few incarnations. There are many annunciations, but few incarnations. What does that mean? It means that heaven is always approaching your heart. It means that all day long, heaven is approaching your heart. The bridegroom is pressing in. He never retreats. Every single image of the sacred heart you've ever seen, every statue of the sacred heart. I'm, my parish is Sacred Heart of Jesus Parish, so this new devotion of the sacred heart has been in my world the past few years. But every image, every statue of the sacred heart, you see Jesus has one foot forward. <laughs> always. Because he's always on the approach. He's always drawing close. He's always scooching a little bit closer on the couch. Always inching closer, ever closer. He's always approaching with the invitation of, will you let me put life there? Will you let me in to heal, to magnify? Like that memory, that wound, that trauma, that addiction, that, that place of like greatest fear, like that hope that you're so afraid to even name out loud because you don't even want to hope that much. Will you let me into that place? There are many annunciations, but few incarnations. There are few people, there's few in the church who open the wombs of their hearts to conceive. It's because we don't know that the most fertile place in us is the place of greatest poverty. The most fertile places in you are the places of greatest poverty, the places of greatest shame, fear. 
Like he's always on the descent into hell. Hell is alienation from God. There are parts of our hearts. There are parts of our stories. There's parts of our past where like heaven hasn't yet touched. Like we carry hell within us. Like this place that hasn't been evangelized, this place that hasn't had the Lord enter in, that's hell. That's the tomb. And Jesus wants to come into that place and burst forth with resurrected life to make every tomb into a womb, to make every place of death, every place of fear, every place of an alienation into a place of communion. There are f- many enunciations, but few incarnations. Like we are meant to look like pregnant people, spiritually speaking. You see a pregnant woman, like what you know is she has let someone into herself so deeply, been affected so deeply that she now carries within her love made into life. Like Christians are supposed to look like spiritually pregnant people. They're like, people look at us, and they're meant to see, oh, you have been affected on such a deep level that you carry within yourself now a life that comes from another world. There are many annunciations, but few incarnations. May that not be said of us this week, dear friends. Let's just give that open space, that yes, that I've got nothing to offer you except my tomb, my junk, my baggage. He just says, roll away the stone, and I'll burst forth life. Amen.